you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville, Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Open your tablet, your phone, and turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be starting in uh, chapter 10, kind of the middle of the chapter, starting in verse 19. So Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 19 through 31. Again, my name is Janet Reams, and what an honor to be here with you this morning. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse pun- Excuse me, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's holy word. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Janet. And uh, happy new year. It feels like it's, like, I haven't seen you guys since last year. But, um, groans. Yeah. All right. Uh, Okay. Uh, This is Make It Weird Sunday. Everybody just, like, buckle up your seatbelts. Okay. And then unbuckle them. And I want you to stand up. And we're going to do two things. To kind of make it weird, introverts, just, I hope you took your meds today or drank extra coffee or something, because we're going to do two things, all right? Number one, uh, I think it's important that your friends know that you go to a particular gathering of believers. So I am now inaugurating at Red Hill, first Sunday check-in. And what I want you to do is, if you have a Facebook account, then take a picture of yourself with somebody else and just check in at Red Hill Church because the overwhelming majority of people come to church for the first time because they were invited by a friend. And if you pull back the curtain and tell people that you go to a church, maybe one of them will ask you about it because if you're like me, you probably haven't been all that faithful to tell other people, I go to this particular church, I'd love for you to come. So that's one thing we're going to do. And the second thing that we're going to do is Evan's going to throw a question up on the screen for you. And you're going to check in and you're going to answer this question 
to somebody else. So this is a curveball, but it's Make It Weird Sunday, and I love it, and I have the mic, and I'm the lead pastor, which means I can do pretty much what I want until the elders fire me. All right, so uh, check in. What makes a great church? Stand up, walk around, introduce yourself. The best case scenario is to talk to somebody you don't know, but answer this question. What makes a great church? Check in. Get up. Everybody should be up. You should be up. You can get your phones out. It's not a lecture hall. It's a family gathering. So check in and tell somebody what makes a great church. You've been in good churches. You've been in bad churches. And uh, I think that uh, as we think about this, what we have to think about is how do we become meaningful to one another? Because I think the hallmark of a great church, I think those are all true answers. But I, for me, distilling it down to one single word would just be love. That, that there is a manifestation of love for us. It's not easy, but it is simple, which is nice because you don't have to be overly amazing or overly wealthy or overly intelligent or overly capable to make a great church. You don't have to have the world's greatest programs, the world's greatest preacher, the world's greatest music, or the world's greatest facility. You don't have to have marketing. You don't have to have great swag. You don't have to have a perfect location. You don't have to have just the right combination of ethnic uh, uh, ambiguity and ethnic mixtures. You don't have to aim at targets for size or accomplishments. If love is present between the people who are there and from the people towards God, it's a great church. And some great churches are enormous and some great churches are small, but it all comes down to love. This is what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Um, throw it up on the screens for me, Ev. I'm going to read along on the screens rather than flipping there in my Bible. Uh, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. I heard a pastor once say that if you were to frame all that God expected of us, like put it into a picture frame and attach it to your wall, the only way that it can stay attached is with the nail of love. That's what it all hangs on. And if you take away love, then you've broken all of it. So it is fundamentally the most important characteristic that exists. But we gotta be honest about love. It's a little bit weird. You know what I'm saying? It's a little bit weird and counterintuitive to love other people. It's just weird. When I fell in love with Sarah, I had been trying to get her to date me for quite a while. She was casually dating someone else at the time, but I don't let little things like that bother me. <laughs> Listen, she wasn't married. You know, I figured the sooner she broke up with him, the less heartbroken he was going to be. It was an act of kindness on my part to try to steal this girl away from him. So I, I pursued. I asked her out. She said no, out, no, out, no. Eight times she said no. The ninth time she finally agreed to go out with me on the very romantic date of watching intramural volleyball. This is like the last thing. I was like, it's the least threatening thing I could think of. And she did it, and we went out, and we watched intramural volleyball, and we talked. And then after that, we walked around campus, because I think my car was broken down, and she didn't have a car at school. So we walked around campus for a long time. And then we got back to the dorm, 
and I was going to drop her off at the dorm, and we had called security because you had to have a security uh, officer come and unlock the dorms for you. And, uh, and I looked at her, and I said, I'm not going to lie to you, Sarah. I am really interested in you. I like you a lot. And so I'm going to keep asking you out. And if you don't want to go out with me, then you're just going to have to start telling me no, and eventually I will get the hint. And she later jokingly said, I did not believe you that you would get the hint because I had been saying no for quite some time. But love kind of puts it out there, right? I mean, love kind of puts it out there and puts it on the line. I like you. Do you like me? I want to be close to you and connected to you. Do you want to be close to me and connected to me? And the only way love works is if you take risks and you're vulnerable. Because if you don't do those things, then someone is loving a facsimile of you. If you're not vulnerable and honest about what's happening, then somebody isn't able to love who you really are. They love some presentation of you, not the real you. Some image of you that you've carefully curated and crafted for others so that you're more palatable to them and also they courteously do the same for you. And isn't this what the majority of our church life has felt like even at our own church now? where we feel this pressure to make sure that everybody knows we're not bad, like evil people, but we want to make sure they know we're pretty good people. And we don't want them to really know the deep struggles and anxieties and fears and doubts. And so what we do is we share instead of being vulnerable. An example of sharing is saying, like, my, my marriage is going through a rough patch right now. That's sharing and it's good. But being vulnerable is saying, last night my wife, this is not what happened. I'm, this is just an example. Sarah and I didn't do this last night, just for reference. But last night my wife and I got into such a big fight that we were yelling so loudly that it woke up the kids. That's being vulnerable. We're very good at sharing. It doesn't take any courage to share. It takes a little courage, I guess, to share. But being vulnerable takes a tremendous amount of courage. And uh, I want to just kick things off with that by making sure we're kind of entering into make it weird, sort of on the same page, all right? Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31, and we're going to take it a little bit out of order today. We're going to look at uh, 19 through uh, 23, and then 26 through 31, and then we're going to come back to 24 and 25, okay? So 19 through 31 uh, shows us our identity and the rights and privileges that we have inside of that identity. Who we actually are. And it's important to know who you actually are. Because if you don't know who you are, if your source of identity doesn't come from what Jesus has done for you, then you are endlessly going to be looking to other people to tell you who you are. And you're going to be looking to other people not only to tell you who you are, but to validate who you hope that you are. Which puts an... Uh, an, an unbelievable amount of pressure upon things and people and sets up a for sure letdown and failure for both parties. Because no idol can give you what only God can give you. When you start looking horizontally to discover who you are, you will become more and more confused and more and more disappointed and more and more wounded. But when you look vertically for who you are, you discover some pretty incredible things about yourself that don't feel very true and don't always seem to be true, but they are. He starts, uh, the, I should say the passage starts, excuse me, in verse 19, where it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, the very first thing that I want you to see is that we are a family. We've been made a family 
not just randomly and not just physically, but we've been made a family by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about our identity flows from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And apart from that, we can have absolutely no understanding of who we are supposed to be and how we are supposed to live. Please don't miss that. Apart from the life, death, and, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you're never going to understand who you are. And you are never going to know how you are supposed to live your life, what you are supposed to do in this life. But because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have been born again and you've been born into a family. Followers of Jesus are brothers and sisters. We're a family. And that is wonderful and terrible and complicated and amazing and it means that we fight and it means that we love and it means that we spend time together it means that we're a family and all that goes with it and every family has weird uncles and cousins and aunts and weird grandmas and grandpas and weird moms and dads and weird kids and if you're like I don't think this family has that well I have two pieces of news for you <laughs> we do and you're in good company with me all right, um, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This passage tells us some things about it, uh, about what that does for us. Number one, in verse 19, it stands as the gate through which we enter salvation. You can't be part of the family without entering through the gate, and the gate is Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that makes you a Christian, not attending church, not being nice, and not being basically a good person. It's faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and nothing else. So Jesus is the gate through which we enter. And he's the inauguration of a new covenant, the beginning of a whole new covenant. And that's kind of like churchy language. When Sarah and I began dating, we knew each other as friends. When I asked her to marry me, we were in a new phase of relationship and a new way of understanding each other as fiancé and fiancéer. I don't know, the, uh, what's the guy name? Fiancé? It's just fiancé and fiancé. It's gender-neutral engagement. Although she got the ring and I just had to keep looking pretty and turning down nobody, literally nobody was approaching me. But after that, we got married and now we relate to each other in a new way as husband and as wife. So it's a new covenant that we have entered. In the old covenant, you had to be a Jew and you had to obey the law. Jesus said through his life, death, and resurrection, He's starting a new covenant for us, a new way for us to relate to God, and that's through him, through what he did. And uh, belief in him, faith in him, that's the establishment of the new covenant. That's what makes you part of the family now. Not only that, but he does the work of uh, granting us access to God's presence. This ongoing work of uh, being the mediator between God and man. That, that feeling that we have sometimes as followers of Jesus where we're like, Man, I just keep messing up, and I don't know how God doesn't get sick of me. Like, I just, it, and it's, and, and all of us, it's almost always the same cycle of sins in a season where we just go, I'm, I'm so disappointed in myself, and I don't know how God could possibly feel differently about me than I feel about me. And the answer is, you have Jesus 
always in the presence of the Father, making intercession for you. It's, it's so important, I want to read it to you. Verses 21 and 22. It says, we have a great high priest over the house of God, since we have him. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Why is it that we can keep going back to God? It's because Jesus is the one who's standing before God and saying, Raiden is okay because I've made him clean. I have made, I am making, I will make him clean. And so every time I come to God, I can have confidence because Jesus is there. I don't get to have confidence because I'm there. I don't get to have confidence because I walked down an aisle when I was nine years old. That doesn't feel very good as a 47-year-old guy who still struggles with sin that that nine-year-old could never conceive of. But what does feel good is knowing Jesus is there. And since Jesus is there, I can go there. He's constantly, endlessly, always making me clean until that day when he finishes the work of me uh, and I am made complete and made completely new. So he's always there and he's always doing it. And also, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's the sole reason that we are a people of hope. We, one of our values at Red Hill is to choose to hope, to continue believing that God can do something even when it looks like and it feels like and it seems like nothing good could possibly happen and nothing will ever change. We lock our arms together and we hope with each other and we hope for each other. And the reason that we do that is because of Jesus. Look at what it says there in verse 23. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Since he who promised is faithful. That's why we get to be a people of hope. That's why we get to believe we won't endlessly struggle with the same sins. That's why we get to believe that our friends and our family who don't yet know the Lord can turn to the Lord. It's why we get to believe that the greatest days of walking with Jesus and knowing Jesus are still ahead of us. Because the God who saved us, who made promises to us, is faithful. That's why we choose to hope. Not because we are positive kind of people, not because we just want to look on the bright side of life, not because we love Disney stories and Hallmark movies, and because there's always a happy ending, and because there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. No, when someone says, even though life is kicking you in the face, why is it that you still can put a smile on? Why can you show any kindness at all? Why can you believe, even though that relationship is right now under the weight of sin, why can you believe that anything good is ever going to happen? And the only answer is, he who made promises to me is faithful. He's, Jesus is faithful. That's why. That's your identity. That's who you actually are. Whenever I was a kid and I would tell a lie, my mom would say, Hollis men don't lie. And I would be like, Have I, am I adopted? Because I lie a lot. Hollis men don't let their anger control their actions. And I'm like, I don't know if that's all the way true. But my mom was trying to teach me something important. Identity is not established by just what I do. My reputation is established by what I do. But I, I, identity is given to me. 
I received that from my family. I am a Hollis. That means something. You are in Christ. That means something. This is who you really are. This is who you are in Christ. God's family, made clean, made holy, who live bold and courageous lives, filled with grace and filled with hope. That's who you actually are. That is your true identity. And if you look to anyone else to tell you who you are, you will be disappointed, hurt, and confused. But when you look to Jesus, you see who you really are. The problem, though, is we don't always act like that, right? We don't always act like that. I want to I skip to verses 26 through 31 and tell you, uh, Paul Tripp, he says that Christians are identity amnesiacs. We're always forgetting who we actually are. We're endlessly forgetting all the rights and privileges that go with being us. I, when I was a counselor at Camp Canacuck, I, I happened to meet a celebrity's kid. I was working the trampoline station. He was jumping on the tramp. It was Stephen Curtis Chapman's son who started his own band, which is a pretty good band as well, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but it's a pretty good band. Was it? Yeah, Colony House. What is it? Colony House. Yeah, yeah. So I'm talking to the lead singer of Colony House, but at the time he's only nine. And I was like, I was like, what's it like having a famous dad? Like, what's it like that your dad is Stephen Curtis Chapman? And he goes, I don't know. I mean, to me, he's just dad. We forget that the creator and sustainer of the universe, that's, that's just dad. It's, it, there's no bat phone for us. It's not some, spe- it's like, that's just my dad. That's just what he does. That's just who he is. That's who we are. But we forget. We forget. And we don't always act like it. In verse 26 to 31, it says, If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If you hear the gospel and you abandon the truth of the gospel, you walk away from what you know to be good and right and true, What's, what's waiting for you? Does this New Testament Jesus have to say? What's waiting for us? If you deliberately go on sinning, endlessly sinning, without repentance, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That doesn't mean that suddenly you've taken Jesus from the cross. What it means is there's no payment for you. No one's going to cover the debt for you. Well, then what do you get? Here's what you get a terrifying expectation of judgment, an endless sense of deep dread. And if you have walked with Jesus longer than about 30 minutes, you have felt this, and I have too. When you get into something and you go, I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I just don't know how to get out of doing it. Judgment. And not just any kind of judgment, the fiery kind of judgment. And not just a regular fire, but the fire that consumes the adversaries. That is a major bummer for everyone who is going on deliberately sinning. And for all of us who allow our family and friends who follow Jesus 
to go on deliberately sinning. What a terribly unkind and cruel thing to do. Anyone, the writer says, who disregarded the law of Moses, anybody who just just said, I'm not going to live by the law of Moses, died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If I worked on the Sabbath and two of y'all punks ratted me out, I'm dead. That's it. I'm dead. That's how that worked. And what does the writer say? How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane or as just regular, just totally ordinary, nothing spectacular about it. That's what profane means. Regarded as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You guys are like, this is a bummer. Usually you're really nice. I'm making it weird today. And also, I'm telling you the truth. I don't know if you know this or not. But the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. The Raiden who dated Sarah and was engaged to Sarah and is now married to Sarah is exactly the same Raiden. It's just that the nature of how we relate to each other has changed. That God that you see in the Old Testament. I talk to people like, I really like the New Testament God better than the Old Testament God. I'm like, I have a troubling piece of information for you. Alpha Omega, same yesterday, today, and forever. He who does not change is how God is referred to. If you look over in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells this truth in a parable. Matthew 21, it'll be on the screens. Uh, I'm going to start in verse, what do I have? 32. So in Matthew 21, verse uh, 32 Excuse me, actually, 33 is where I'm going to start. Sorry, you can skip 32. It says, Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. We don't like to acknowledge the truth. That's part of the problem for us. We don't like to acknowledge the truth. We don't like to be honest about our lives. We don't like to be honest about our sin. We don't like to be honest about our circumstances. We don't like to be honest about the truth of consequences. We don't like to be honest about hell and the realities of judgment and the truth that hell is not the only punishment for sin that exists. That we live with consequences in the here and now as well. 
we're a family. We're a family. You're like, man, this was great at the beginning. And then it got real, real serious along the way. And pretty heavy and dark. We're a family. The problem is we don't always act like it. Because everyone who has ever been a part of church in the history of church existing and in the history of people existing has been hurt by the church. You've heard about the Southern Baptist who went out to sea and got stranded on a desert island, haven't you? Have you heard about this guy? He was finally rescued. And when he was rescued, he said, I want to I take you guys on a tour of the village that I've constructed. And the rescuers were like, okay, you know, sounds great. And so he took him to a hut. He said, this is my house. Awesome, that's great. That's really cool. Uh, what's this second one over here? And he goes, that is where I go to church. And they were like, okay, awesome. What's the third one over here? And he goes, that's where I used to go to church. Yeah. We're family, but we don't always act like it, and we don't always feel like it. In fact, not family is the normal church experience. You know, you know your family when you can rag on each other and not end up hating each other and walking away forever. You know your family when uh, you can fart, and it's okay. Nobody cares other than just giving you some grief about it because it smells awful. You, you know that your marriage has reached a really high, like, like, like ninja level of intimacy when you can poop with the door open. Some of you still aren't there. I see a few heads shaking. What I'm saying is we all understand what family is. There's an idealized version of it where everybody always gets along and we lead ourselves up to the holidays and go, maybe it'll be like that this year. And then we get with our family and we're like, this is amazing. It's all the people that I want to be with. And the only thing I want is to get away from all these people. And that's what it feels like to be a family. And how does it work? And what is it that makes a great family? Is that they keep showing up and loving each other and forgiving each other. And just not leaving and not giving up and not quitting. Not family is the normal church experience. And I don't want the normal church experience. I've had a normal church experience. I've been in places where it was all about growth. It was all about numbers. And I was pretty good at that. Like, I could, I could do that pretty good over the course of my life. I've been at the church where it was all about community and just making sure everybody was comfortable and kind. I've been at the church where it was like, you just have to keep showing up and checking all the right boxes and doing all the right things. I've been at those churches, and all those churches that I've been at did great things for me. None of them was an evil place. And all of them were trying their best to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to help me do the same. And that's all I want out of our church. And I think the only way to get there is if we make it weird. So we're just going to talk about making it weird, which is, I think, what verse 24 and 25 are actually all about. Verses 24 and 25 say, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Sunday morning worship gathering is commonly called church. Are you going to church this morning? Where do you go to church? And uh, when we first came to, to Edwardsville, the very first thing we did was we went to the winter market, um, and we set up a booth, and we gave away some Red Hill mugs, and we had these cards, uh, and on the cards it said, uh, it was a hashtag, it said, don't go to church. And everyone was like, this is like we talked to several people who were very confused. In the end, it was a better, like, 
you know, sketch comedy routine probably than a marketing campaign for a church. But they were like, what are you talking about? Don't go to church. Aren't you a church? And, and it's because there's this fundamental un, uh, misunderstanding about what church is that's really, like, developed inside of us from a young age. Because everybody, I'm going to put my mic down for just a second. Sorry, podcast. Do this with me. Make your hands like this. And then actually like this. And what do we say? Here's a church. Here's a steeple. Open the doors, and there's all the people. And here's what we did for like a year in the beginning of Red Hill. Here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open the door, and there's the church. Because the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. It's people. That's what the church is. It's people. That's why we call this building the box. Because this is just a building. You cannot ever go to church. You can go be with your church. But you and I together, that's what the church is. That's what the church is. The common application of these two verses is to say, make sure you go to the weekend worship gathering. Don't ever skip the weekend worship gathering for any reason whatsoever in the history of ever. I'm an advocate of that partly because I don't like preaching to an empty room. I don't know, like my mark for when you're not a church plant anymore is when somebody says how many people were there and you, you give a number and then list off names of people that were absent. When you stop listing off names of people that were absent, you're not a church plant anymore. You're like, we had 45 people, but, you know, Sarah wasn't there, and Steve wasn't there, and John wasn't there. So if they had been there with their families, it would have been massive, you know. But uh, when you stop doing that, that's when you're not a church plant anymore. But here's the problem that probably you've run into and that definitely I've run into with saying that the point of these two verses and the point of the Christian life is to make sure that you don't miss the weekend worship gathering. Here's the problem. It doesn't work. If you just show up on the weekend, it doesn't matter how good the music is, it doesn't matter how good the preaching is, it doesn't matter how nice the people are, it doesn't matter how tasty the coffee is, it doesn't matter how good kids was or youth was or whatever else that church offers to you was, if the only thing you do is show up on the weekend, it's never going to be enough. It's never been enough ever because you were made for more than casual connection. You're made for more than that. You desperately need more than that. We live in a stream of endlessly casual relationships. Endlessly casual relationships. I'm not going to ask anybody to testify out loud, but, uh, you know, draw a circle around yourself and in the stillness of this moment, whatever imitation, uh, invitation type stuff you've heard, I want to ask you to be honest about these questions just with your own self. How many people know how you're really doing? And think about the difference between sharing and being vulnerable. How many people know how you are really doing? How many can name your specific struggles at this moment of your life? How many people know what you do when you are hurting? Does anybody know how close you are to giving up, to walking away? 
that you're angry or lazy or self-righteous or self-justifying or resentful? Does anybody know that you want to look at pornography? That you have a soul-crushing inner dialogue? That you speak to yourself in a way when you're hurting and struggling and failing that you would never speak to another person? That you doubt God's love for you? That your life is more guided by fear than by courage? Does anybody know that you feel hopeless or afraid or alone? Who actually knows? It's important because you can only minister to that which you know. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral of someone uh, who committed suicide. It's the same phrase echoed over and over again. We didn't know. When a marriage suddenly falls apart, we didn't know. When a person suddenly abandons their faith, man, we, did, we didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know. The reality of everyday life is that we need help. You need help. I need help. There's another Paul Tripp quote. We'll put it on the screen for us, Evan. Paul David Tripp, he says, uh, he says this. Is it up? There it is. Okay, cool. If we live in a stream of terminally casual relationships, we have little capacity to stir one another up to love and good works. If all that is offered to you out of a church family are platitudes, then all that can help is generic, temporary, and easy difficulties. But if you want to gain victory in your life, it's going to require you to make it weird. Make it weird. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. You can write this down. I'll share it on Facebook or, you know, in some kind of a church center app thing at some point in the near future. But it's a call to intentionally intrusive, grace-driven, Christ-centered living. Intentionally intrusive. Some of you guys are like, I have experienced that with you. When you have walked up to me and been like, hey, what's going on here? Hey, why don't you ask that person out? Hey, have you ever thought about doing this with your life? Hey, you'd make a great fill in the blank with this. And you're like, that is really intrusive and uncomfortable. And everybody in my G, like the people that were laughing, they're in my GC. Yeah. And they're like, yep, yeah, that's right on brand, man. It is real, real up in your uncomfortable space, your personal space. Intentionally intrusive, grace-driven, Christ-centered living. In Genesis, it's paradise, it's perfection, it's one person and God, and God says that's not good because you need other people. So that means you're going to have to cross the comfortable boundaries. You're going to have to cross the comfortable boundaries, and here's how you really cross them. By inviting other people into your personal space. There is, uh, so I am, uh, I'm volunteer coaching uh, Liberty Middle School's wrestling team. I, I'm assistant coaching. I'm like, whatever the totem pole, the chain of command is, I rank 
just one peg above eighth grader. So that's, everybody should be really impressed. And I'm doing it because I'm a Christian and I enjoy coaching and I enjoy wrestling. That's why I'm doing it. It has nothing to do with Red Hill. It's just me being a human person and saying I want to make a difference in my community. And there is a phrase that we use in wrestling. And the phrase is that you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that is something that you and I need to get used to at our church. It should be absolutely the perfect place for anyone who's struggling with anyone to come in the doors and know that they are loved. But understand, the only way that you can really be loved is if you are really known. That's the only way you can be loved, is if you are really known. And we need to lose our sense of appalled shock and disdain for the sinful people that exist among us and instead be intentionally intrusive and investing because the people that live and move and breathe and are part of this church family, they need brothers and sisters that are spiritual. They need aunts and uncles that are spiritual. They need mothers and fathers that are spiritual. They need grandmothers and grandfathers that are spiritual. And I don't care if you are Phoebe Jean who walks up during the service and gives me a hug as a weekly reminder that God loves me and what I am in him is way more important than what I do on a stage. Or if you are the oldest person in the room, you have a place and a purpose here. You're needed and you're wanted. We have to get comfortable being uncomfortable so that we can remember our deep need for grace and so that we can remind other people of their deep need for grace. And when someone says, you know, my marriage is struggling, we're fighting a lot, or I can't stop looking at pornography and I can't forgive him or her for looking at pornography, or I've been texting with someone I shouldn't be texting with, or I can't stop telling lies about someone, or I've taken this relationship to a place it shouldn't have gone, or I'm lazy, or I'm self-justifying, or I'm only interested in protecting and serving myself, or I never read my Bible, or I don't know how to pray, or whatever, fill in the blank. I don't need to enumerate all the sins that exist in humanity. What I need to say is, I'm a sinner and you are a sinner, but the only way that you can love me is if you know me, and the only way I can love you is if I know you. That doesn't mean we run around to everybody and we put a billboard up with all of our sins listed and enumerated. It means that we're inviting people to know us and inviting people to be close to us and being vulnerable with somebody. And I know what it feels like and I know that it's scary. In wrestling, we tell our kids, get comfortable being uncomfortable. You're never going to be able to score points from distance. You have to get up close and put yourself at risk. Otherwise, you're never going to win. And I think, I'm convinced, one of the primary reasons in my life when I'm not growing in the Lord, it's because nobody knows that I'm not growing in the Lord. And I'm the kind of person who says, my solution is to get away from all of you, go into a space all alone, figure it out for myself, and then come back as a finished work in front of you. But that robs you and me of all of the joy. Because you know what you need? I, I was talking with Angie, and she said, you know what makes a great church? A pastor who's vulnerable and honest. You know what makes a great friend? A friend is vulnerable with you. 
A friend allows you to be vulnerable and they still like you and love you even though you are a jacked up sinner who's a mess. If you want to get serious about seeing improvement anywhere in your life, you know what you do? You find a friend who will help you. You find someone who cares about you and loves you and will help you. We have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's how we become a great church. That's how we become a community of grace. And that's how we actually become free. Because there's a real lie that's being told to you and being told to me. And the real lie is that the only safe place is still hiding among the bushes and wearing the fig leaves. That that's the only place where you're safe. Where no one knows. And in that space, you're safe. But the truth is, is that in that space, you are vulnerable to an enemy. Instead of being vulnerable to a friend. Because your, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, is prowling around and seeking someone whom he may devour. And so we get to choose. To be Adam and Eve living in fear. Why are you hiding? We heard you coming close to us and we were afraid. And God calls them out of that space. He doesn't humiliate or expose them. Instead, he provides a better covering for them. They still have to live with consequences, but they don't have to live without relationship. That's really important. Because our sin sometimes carries nasty consequences. But you can be vulnerable and afraid, or you can be vulnerable and courageous. You can be vulnerable to an enemy, or you can be vulnerable to a friend. In the end, make it weird is pretty simple. And this is really, 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 really important. It's actually pretty simple. And, and all of our values, any company's values, any church's values, if they just live on a page, then they're not really the values. The only way that this actually becomes a value is not because the elders say this is a value, but it's because we live it out together, all right? We actually put it into practice. But it's pretty simple. It's just doing the basic stuff that the Bible talks about. That's just it. <laughs> it's like, you know, don't make it overly complicated. You don't need to be a great the, uh, uh, theologian to know, oh, that person seems sad. I wonder if they just could use somebody to come along and just go like, hey, you okay? Can I pray for you? Do you need some encouragement? Man, the, the worship is great, and I'm feeling my heart drawn towards Jesus. But if I raise my hands, people are going to think I'm weird. You are weird already. So am I. We're weird. Everybody is weird. I don't know what normal is, but I don't have any interest in being it or being around it. When the Holy Spirit is leading you and you go, I want to raise my hands in worship. Instead of going, what if people think that I'm weird? Just lean right into it. I'm just going to make it weird. I'm going to raise a hand in worship. Not everybody's a hand raiser. I get it. I pity the people that aren't hand raisers because it's awesome to be expressive and emotive and let Jesus know how much I love him. We are commanded actually to lift up holy hands in prayer. We're going to make it weird. That our response moment is no longer going to be just a random cattle call towards the Lord's Supper. But instead is hopefully going to be us listening to the Holy Spirit and being sensitive to it. And saying, there's somebody I need to go apologize to. There's somebody I need to text. 
I might have to step out and make a phone call. I need to gather somebody up and we're just going to pray together because I feel deeply burdened for a friend of mine who's moved. And I don't know if they're alone. I don't know if they found a church. I don't know what's going on in their lives. I, I'm going to gather up and pray for a lost friend of mine. I'm going to take longer and think about what Jesus did for me. And I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper all the way until the service is over. The point is not for us to get into the rhythms of liturgy and just operate inside of that as if that's what we're doing here. What we're doing here is a gathered family that is supposed to be celebrating the community that we experience during the week. And celebrating the Jesus that loved us, cared for us, and preserved us during the week. That's, that's what we're doing here. And we're listening carefully to his spirit and adapting and following him. Not a plan. Following the Holy Spirit of God. Praying, loving each other, being vulnerable, giving grace always. Keep leaning in towards each other. Being humble and approachable and being compassionate when we're honest. And understanding. That when people confront us about sin, they've done an incredible kindness to us. Because that sin wants to kill you. That's a true friend. Someone who loves you enough to make it weird. That's where we're going. Some of you are already supremely uncomfortable with this idea. And I was talking to, uh, I was talking to the team in our pre-service meeting. And I, I said... Here's what I'm hoping about this message. Some of you have to think back a ways. Some of you are in this right now, and some of you are hoping to be in it someday. But I'm going to speak from my own perspective. To remember back to the time when I really liked Sarah, but I didn't know if she really liked me. But I really wanted her to really like me. And it was this tension of like, oh, man, like, I really, really hope it's true. I really, like, I really want it to be. And I don't know if it's going to work. And I don't know if it's going to be good. And it really can only go one of two directions. Amazing or tragic. But that's the nature of love. It steps into that void and says... I'm just going to step into a place where I'm really uncomfortable because this is too important not to do. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to make it weird. And I am going to invite you now to consider what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. Because we're moving into our response moment. Segue. Accomplished. I, I want to start by saying this. The most important thing that you can ever do while you are still breathing, is to give your life to Jesus. It is the most important thing you can ever do to give your life to him. And the second most important thing that you can do is just like it, to give your life to others. And somebody here, maybe, needs to give their life to Jesus. And everybody here needs to give their life to others. Somebody maybe has taken a little bit of that life back for themselves. I don't need to walk you through all of the things that the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. 
but I think it's important for you to listen carefully, and it's important for you to obey wherever he's leading. We have the Lord's Supper available. You don't have to come up in this gap between me speaking and the band leading. You can move as the Lord invites you to move. You can come up immediately or you can wait. I'll be available to pray with you. If you want to gather up with somebody else and pray, you can do that. Some people in some churches like to come to the front and pray. This is not an altar. We're not sacrificing anything here. But if you want to come to the front and pray with people, that sometimes is a great encouragement to other people. Or you can gather up in your seats. Or you can go over into the wide open space. Or you can go outside. It's cold. Put your coat on. But gather up with some people and pray for something or for somebody. You might just need to have a conversation with somebody. In church? <gasps> is it, I'm, not, I'm not giving you a lecture. This isn't a classroom. Talk to somebody if you want to talk to them. You might need to go over and just say, I've seen this in you, and I just admire it so much. And I just want to say thank you because I really admire that about you. Just listen. Just listen. And then don't be afraid. Be vulnerable with a friend so that you don't stay vulnerable to an enemy. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening. God, we invite you to speak to us. We ask you to help us. Help us to give our lives to you and to give our lives to each other. That this might be described as like, it's like a really weird church where people like actually have friends and sin is actually confronted and encouragement is freely and often given. Let us live into the identity that you've given us and not be people of fear. We love you because you love us. When you're ready, you can respond however the Lord's leading you. Let's make it weird.